Welcome to the Racisms Podcast. We're your hosts, Jazlyn and Lisa. We decided that this world could use more cross-cultural conversations that seek healing over division, understanding over ignorance, and a better world overall. where we have cross-cultural conversations to make this world a better place. I'm Lisa, co-host of the podcast with Jaslyn. Hello. And before we get started, just want to remind everyone that we are fundraising this season to decide if we will come back for another season. Your support tells us that you're enjoying the podcast and can't wait to hear future seasons. Today's episode, we are inviting our producer on, Kyle Carson, producer and editor, to discuss the issue of reparations. Welcome back, Kyle. Thank you very much for having me back. Kyle is an advocate and supporter of reparations for black Americans in the U.S. And he even has an organization and podcast that focuses on reparations. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your efforts around your group and the podcast? Yes. So over a year ago, when everything was happening with Black Lives Matter blowing up and everybody was reacting to the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and others. I had a conversation with my brother and we were kind of talking through everything, how we felt about everything. And it was just, we both were like, I mean, reparations is really the only answer. And then I had a conversation with my buddy from college and we had the same conclusion. So the three of us started an organization called make America whole which is set up as a nonprofit to basically advocate and move the needle towards reparations for the United States of, in the United States of America um, for African-Americans. And, uh, you know, the podcast is something that we did. We actually only did a few episodes of that. Um, we're not actively recording anymore, but we, be, we did that to kind of just continue to get information out there um, in support of reparations. So, um, yeah, that's that's the origin of it. All right. Yeah. Thanks for giving us a little a little brief overview. We will definitely uh, dive deeper as the episode goes on into the different issues um, around reparations, uh, what it looks like, and why we should all be advocating for it. I have the first question. Okay. What is reparations? In your mind, how do you define reparations in this context? Reparations is a redress for a crime or for a a wrongdoing plain and simple and And in this historically okay yeah go ahead no go ahead go ahead so reparations historically has been used in a couple of different ways one interesting way it was used in the past was if a war was started and somebody and and the person who the, the entity the country whoever that won the war if they weren't the one that started it the losing and, and instigating country that started the war and lost would have to pay reparations. So not only did they lose the war, but they had to pay reparations for starting the whole thing in the first place. It's kind of like paying legal fees, you know, it's kind of, kind of terrible. Um, another, there's also several examples throughout the, throughout the world of reparations for direct human to human, uh, human caused suffering. So for example, Germany and the United States, by the way, pay reparations to Jewish, Jewish folks um after the after the holocaust mm-hmm. 
that's a very interesting thing to look into. The United States government has also paid reparations to a few other groups. Uh, very many Native nations have gotten reparations. I'll be the first to say what they what they got is pales in comparison to what really they they need to get. But many Native nations have received some form of reparations from the United States government. Japanese Americans after World War II and the internment that they went through also received reparations. That was also very small compared to what you know they they really should have gotten back. But those are some examples of reparations in terms of a, a formal redress of a, of a of a wrongdoing. And this is normally from a, a government entity to a group of people or another government. So I heard in the, your definition, Kyle, that it is a formal redress. Uh, so what do you think about all these private institutions uh, doing re- reparations on like a really small scale? Do you think that is a good start? Um, not really what you were thinking or like, what do you think about it? I know you want to see a bigger a bigger program, but what do you think about these smaller institutions doing it for on their own? So reparations is any redress for a wrong. So if an organization that's smaller, say Georgetown University, um, I think Asheville, North Carolina was another example. There's a few smaller jurisdictions, smaller areas, smaller municipalities or organizations that have identified an area where they cause people harm and they are paying reparations in that context. That's great. But that's only a local thing. That's a very finite thing. And in the case of Georgetown University, they basically did nothing, which is just terrible. Look into that. They sold 272 uh, people, human people, to save save the university in, I can't remember which year, it was like in the 1830s, I want to say. And there's an entire community of black people still living in in Louisiana who are mostly the descendants of the enslaved folks who were sold by Georgetown University. So all the people who have been to Georgetown University got degrees from Georgetown University. They can thank the sale of 272 bodies um, for the, to say to salvage that university because they were in the water, they were in debt, and that sale allowed them to save stay afloat financially. Mm-hmm. When this all came to light a few years ago, Georgetown University named a building after them and did a couple things, had a ceremony, did nothing otherwise. I'm saying you need to give every single one of those descendants. First of all, ask them what they need. But if I'm a university, I'm thinking you all get to come here for free or anywhere in the country, we'll pay for your tuition anywhere, but especially here, and whatever else they need, whatever else they, I mean, that, that's, that's and, oh, and that's another thing about, about the redress that's important, is that it's supposed to be healing and re- provide closure to the, to, to the folks who were wounded and, and, and who, who suffered under, under the, the oppression or whatever the case was. So to just arbitrarily say what you're gonna do and not even ask the folks who were impacted, you know, that that's all that's speak that's speaking from a place of privilege and a place of continual oppression. Speaking of, you know, a university giving free tuition or free education, um I think you spoke about this a little bit, but on a national level, would you consider similar things like, you know, housing grants, scholarships, tax credits, something other than a check, um, a form of reparations, could it stand on its own or does it need to be accompanied by other forms? Both and. And the way I come to that conclusion is by looking at the crimes. So if you look at, you can look at the United Nations, you know, crimes against humanity, 
you know, slavery's in there, rape is in there, mutilation's in there, forced, forced movement of people is in there. Slavery basically was all of those things, right? And even, let me back up. You can break down American history with respect to black people in what I, I, I consider three major categories. There's the category of chattel slavery, which preceded the United States of America, but if you want, you can start with 1776 uh, when they declared independence and later fought a war and won a war and whatever. So like, that's the start of when the United States as, an, as a government entity becomes liable for the crime of slavery. So 1776 to 1865, which is the end of chattel slavery. As I know you both know, and many of your listeners probably know that the, the 13th Amendment, which was passed after the end of the Civil War, ended chattel slavery but it legalized slavery through the penal system you know in other words if you were convicted of a crime you could still be a slave so after after 1865 you entered a a century of terrorism and disenfranchisement which went from 1865 to 1965 and after 1965 you started to see the war on drugs was basically the, the federal government doubling back on that original clause that exemption clause in the 13th Amendment and making a war on drugs, making making criminality the main way to keep black people enslaved. So you had you had those three periods of time, which each have specific redresses associated with them. So I'm, and I'm getting to the answer to your question, Jaslyn. But for the for the for the first part of that period, you had African-Americans, you had black people working literally for free. And there's very many estimates that went into that have have purported how much that time and that, that value is worth. Um, one estimate dated to with dollars adjusted for today's dollars is 17 trillion with a T dollars, 17 trillion dollars of time, money and value was stolen from black people from 1776 to 1865. That's that. From 1865 to 1965, you had terrorism and disenfranchisement. You had lynchings. You had um intentional redlining you had voting voter disenfranchisement you had all kinds of tactics used violent and political to keep black people either out of wealth out of economic mobility out of education out of voting out of all kinds of things that lasted for a solid 100 years so jaslyn from the perspective that you're asking yes in addition to a check there should be redresses for specific pains that were experienced during that second hunt, that that hundred years there, and also for the for the time since 1865 that obviously still ha- that we're still enduring right now in terms of you know liberating folks who are in jail for for petty crimes. Anybody on the on, serving life under the three strikes rule should be liberated. Um, we should like we need a modern day abolitionist movement to free the masses of people who are incarcerated unjustly and unjustly meaning by laws that are really don't make any sense. Um, so I had a reparations plan that I came up with that included free college tuition for all black black people, including immigrants, because you could have immigrated in here here into the 1920s, 1930s. And you could have also been discriminated against from an educational standpoint. Um, as a black American person, you could purchase a home at 1950s, 1960s pricing. The federal. So if a, if a home right now is worth four hundred thousand dollars, but it was worth one hundred thousand dollars in 1960, you could you as a black American, as a descendant of slavery or as a black immigrant, you could uh, you could purchase that home for one hundred thousand dollars. The government would pay the owner three hundred thousand dollars and you immediately walk into the three hundred thousand dollars of home equity that you were barred from because of redlining and a bunch of other things um, at, at that time. And that idea comes from The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. I should also, damn, I'm going too fast. But yeah, so that's, 
so yes, there's there should be a check. Seventeen trillion dollars should be paid to the descendants of slavery here in the, to the descendants of enslaved Africans here in this country. Then there should be another period. There should be another allocation of resources to provide direct services related to health, education, business ownership, land, and all these other things that are that can be directly tied to the discriminatory practices that took place the century after that. Very interesting. So you kind of brought in some things that I was going to ask about, including who would be eligible for some of these reparations um, provisions and also whether we should be focused on the slavery, the injury of slavery itself or everything that came after it that's tied to slavery. So you're saying you would the reparations programs you want to see would address the slavery period as well as the relics and the badges of incidences of slavery that came after that period. Correct. And that's a, that's a bone of contention with a lot of people. There's a lot of people who say that reparations should only apply to those that descend from American slavery here in the United States. And I like to think of it more broadly. The injury of slavery and the conjoined injury of white supremacy is primarily impacting African-Americans who've been here since, you know, for centuries. But it also impacts those who, who came here. And yes, and there's some who argue, well, they chose to come here and, you know, they shouldn't get anything because they chose to come here. I disagree slightly. And here's, here's how I break it down. If you, can, if you are a descendant of those enslaved here, you are entitled to that $17 trillion, right? If you are a descendant of, uh, so, pl- so let me, okay, so if you are a descendant of those who were enslaved here, you are d- entitled to that, uh, your portion of that $17 trillion, in addition to, you know, th- those government programs I talked about where it's, you know, free college, health care reimbursements, free or reduced business loans, those types of things. So if, if, plus all of those things, you should be entitled to all of those things, right? If you are a descendant of immigrants, black immigrants to this country, I think you do not, you are not eligible for a piece of that 17 trillion because you weren't here then. You weren't. But when you came here, you were subject to various other forms of white supremacy, redlining, all those other things. Those are things that could have very well impacted you. And so based on your lineage and where you came from, when you came here, you should be entitled to some of those other provisions that are more specific. Those don't those pale in comparison financially to the 17 trillion broken down across the, the you know, broken down across, you know, the descendants of slavery. But it's still something. And it acknowledges the fact that anybody who's black in this country has suffered. Right. So you're saying that widening this scope past slavery and all the white supremacist legislation and practices, private and public, may have trickled into non-slavery uh, descendants. They could also be recipients of reparations? I think so, yes. I, th- I think so. And, that, and, that, and, there's, and that I'm, I'm fairly unique in that opinion. I don't, know that, I don't know that there's a whole lot of other folks that agree with me on that, which is why I want to make it clear that I'm speaking on my own behalf and with speaking from my own ideas. I think because that, that's a dividing point. And I really want I really want this to be seen as what it is, which is a solution for the country. Mm-hmm. The reason we called make America called it make America whole is because this country has always been divided. It's been divided in the Constitution and Article, Article two when we said black people are three fifths of human being. I mean, it was divided. It's been divided this entire time. The United States has never truly been what it said it would be. And 
reparations for African-American people is one critical, critical juncture to repairing the wound that has always been here and that has never been healed. Interesting. So, Kyle, you mentioned, uh, was it 17 trillion, right? Yes. 17 trillion. So uh, uh, United States has, for, for, uh, for better or worse, have, has accumulated this debt and is still accumulating this debt um, for hundreds of years. Do you see this payout being taking a couple hundred years or what, what do you think the time frame is? So the time frame should be strategically orchestrated. And I'm not an economist. I kind of understand in, in basic terms, you know, why doling out this kinds of money and resources to African-Americans in a short term would be problematic for, for inflation reasons, you know, primarily. Um, so I, I don't know exactly how long it should take to, to be fleshed out. It sh- it, I think having it be a at least a decade long program is reasonable. But I'm not going to say that I have that all figured out. I just know that there should be a, a multi-generational impact to black Americans, you know, as a result of something like this. Yeah, I could imagine that the oldest living descendants of slaves will not get to see, will not get to see their check because it might take 10 years or more to kind of get that payout. Yeah, and so one one thing that uh, I was thinking through in terms of how to do it would would be to give everybody access to a fund, a financial fund that is basically equivalent to their share of that seventeen trillion dollars, assuming they they're eligible for that. And that fund is something they could take out immediately, or they could let sit as a fund and you know let it accrue further wealth you know, with additional time. And one of the interesting ways that this could be designed is, um, so, so, so in terms of answering your question, for old, older folks, you know, it could be a fund that they have immediately entitled to them. And for older folks who, you know, whatever retirement, whatever, the, whatever inheritance they were going to pass down to their children, this would just add to that, right? Mm-hmm. So just immediately, you know, if somebody who was in their 80s or 90s or whatever and, and passed away a few years from now, you know, unfortunately, you know, that, that those funds could still be bequeathed to their to their uh, their children or grandchildren or whatever the case may be. Going back to this issue of who would be eligible for reparations, um, Kyle, you've joked a couple of times that you would only get half a check because you are mixed <laughs> and one of your parents is yes. not African-American. That is correct. <laughs> is that really how you feel or how, how would you see those who would be eligible for the $17 trillion? Um, would, do you suggest people take DNA tests, you know, do a percentage? Like, what are you saying? I, I don't know how to do it in the very, very, very minutia way of doing it. My case is very simple. My dad is black. My mom is white. I can't, I cannot be justified in receiving more than 50% of that, that portion of that 17 trillion. I, I just can't like that. That's very easy to, de- to delineate from my own lineage, from my own history. Um, and I, and I, I, I do believe that I, you know, my, my dad is black. My mom is the descendant of white immigrants who came over in the early 20th century. You know, they like 
I should not be entitled to the full portion of that 17 trillion, um, you know, because of, because of that. Now the, the black community is so diverse and there's so many intricacies in terms of how, how, from a DNA ancestry.com type perspective, how much, how, how percent, how much percentage of African DNA do you have as opposed to others? I'm not interested in, in parsing through that. Uh, Sandy Darity, who with his wife, Kirsten Mullen wrote from here to equality, they had a couple of interesting ideas in terms of how to identify folks who would be eligible. Uh, that would be folks who can trace back some, can trace back a descendant who was enslaved prior to 1865 and it also has to be somebody who has identified on, on government forms or job job applications for 10 years as black or African-American. So you can't be somebody who's out here thinking that they're white, mm-hmm. passing as white, you know, operating in this world as white. Oh, and on Ancestry.com, you found that you had an ancestor that was enslaved, but you're basically operating as a white person. You are not eligible. Mm-hmm. Right. That You are not included. So you're it's saying you just need one ancestor. <sighs> That's what doctors. So. There's a, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it should be more. But with the stability and accuracy of records dating back that far, it's going to be extremely difficult to do that. Um, I know, Jasmine, in season one, you talked about your delving into your, your ancestry and you've, you've had some success in terms of finding folks, uh, you know, deep into the 1800s. That's not everybody's story. So I recognize that that's a challenge. So I, I don't know how to solve that particular problem. I, I just know that for somebody like me, I'm mixed and that entitles me with certain privileges that doesn't that aren't provided to other people who are fully African-American like that. I, I, I'm aware of that. That's a fact. And I should not be entitled to the. Full, why do you why do you say that? Is it because you are mixed I mean, or is it because of your how you look? Because I know some mixed people that I didn't know they were mixed. I mean, I think it's partly because of how I look. I mean, I definitely look. I'm definitely fair in complexion. So, you know, I, based on that, I get certain, certain privileges from a, from a colorism standpoint. Um, but the idea that black people have missed out on generational wealth and white people have not, you know, somebody who's mixed, who has a white parent is more likely to have access to that generational wealth that than black people have. And to me, that, to me, that, that doesn't account, doesn't, equate to the same uh doesn't equate to the same claim to this pain and to the suffering that african-americans have that you know fully african-americans have now again this is all my opinion and with all the information out there about genealogy and all that like anybody can challenge me on this and i welcome it yeah i mean it's interesting that you say that because you know you're saying every person who has a white parent but also has one ancestor that they trans back into slavery gets half a check because one parent was white if one if one of your parents is white you are not fully you have not fully experienced the 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 general generational pain and suffering of black people here i I just Hmm. think that's true I mean, I mean, white people have benefited from and Dr. Dr. Darity has several data points about the wealth gap that are jarring and I don't have them in front of me. And I should I should maybe I should pull them up and 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 plug them in. But single parent, non-college educated 
white family households have more wealth than a two-parent college-educated black family, black household, Mm -hmm. right? That is the wealth disparity we're talking about here. So I would venture to say that any 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 child who has a a white fam a white parent is benefiting somehow from that. Okay, what about a a person who is mixed but their white parent was never in their life. They were raised by their single black parent, never enjoyed the white experience. <laughs> All right, that should count. I don't know. Like I said, I've been figuring this out. It's like you're getting into a slippery slope. Like people that identify as black can literally have 50% African ancestry because of, you know, years of whatever. But just because you can point to your white parent, you don't get a whole check. I think, I don't know. That's an interesting. Now, one thing I'll say, Jasmine, is we're talking about a lot of money. Yeah. So I don't know if you know this, but $17 trillion broken out by those who are descended from enslavement by, based on my estimation is $448,000. That's okay. <laughs> it's not the lottery. <laughs> no. I mean, that's, that's maybe a house in a DMV if you live far away from D.C. Hold on, hold on. That money's <laughs> not going towards your house. I'm just saying. Because your house, you're, pay, you're, paying, you're paying for 1950s, 1960s prices on your house. So don't think of today's prices. See that? Both of the, all of these things are combined. So you're saying you want to make sure the wrong, not wrong, but only certain people get this pot of money. Yes, absolutely. Interesting. Lisa, do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's a. I think that it's going to be hard to, like you said, verify lineage. Like I was going to also mention Jasmine's episode on where she digs into her lineage and how much work she put into it. And like for people who want, let's say you know this thing is ready, uh, applications are now open. You know, like what about what if for those people who like don't don't or can't do the research themselves? You know, is like you said, is it is it just like. I identify as African-American or is there some sort of proof that people want? And, you know, it's kind of like maybe maybe the agency who who starts this, it says no proof is needed. But then the people who are actually like receiving it or applying for it, they're like, well, why does, you know, that person, you know, is is can get it? Why? Why can't this other person get it? So I don't know, I guess. How do you do it? So that seems fair and equitable for everyone. So no one's like you know, side-eyeing their neighbor or someone who got it who should definitely not have got it. Like, you know, they, they went through a loophole or did something very, like, icky to get the money. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's going to be a myriad of different cases, and I don't have that all figured out. What I, what I do know, though, is that we are talking about a very specific crime, and the redress needs to be very specific. And... Obviously, we're, you know, a couple hundred years removed from the end of chattel slavery. So that the, the, the challenge of figuring out who the descendants of that system are, are very real. However, it's not that hard. <laughs> we have many tools available to, to, to start to figure this out. So one thing that, that my, my idea for reparations would include is government funded genealogy studies. So, for example, and, and some people may not trust that and that's fine, but like. How many people would do 
AfricanAncestry.com, which I have done, which costs $300 per test. How many people, how many black people would do that rather than give white people their money, white people at Ancestry and, you know, 23andMe their money? You know, how many people would rather do that? The, the federal government should subsidize black people pursuing their lineage, right? So that should be, if not free, it's, actually, you know, I'm just making this up right now. That should be free. <laughs> the black people, this, this country literally stole our lineage from us, right? Mm-hmm. They literally stole it. That was policy. Like, you can't speak your mother tongue. You can't do your native language. You can't, I'm sorry, you can't do whatever, whatever religion you were doing in, our, in the continent. You can't do any of that. They literally killed, they literally severed us from our motherland in every meaningful way. So damn right. You know what? Yes, you should absolutely fund everybody's personal lineage story as best as modern technology can provide. And if government funds are poured into that, I bet it's a lot easier to solve this problem. Most people hearing such a large number, Kyle, uh, want to know, and me personally, me personally, I am for reparations. I'm for uh, this vision that you have of making America whole, um, addressing the wrongs that has done in the past in order to move forward to, you know, be its values. Uh, but do you have any idea how much it would cost taxpayers to, or how do we fund such a thing? Uh I would like to know because I, it's easy for me to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for reparations, but then I get, you know, an X amount of, of tax bill and I'm like, whoa, I don't know if I can, if I can, if I can afford it or it's just a bit, it's a bigger hit than I had thought. So what do you think about how much it costs tax, how much it will cost taxpayers? So the program that I came up with broke it down into four categories. One was the that reimbursement for chattel slavery, which we talked about, that $17 trillion. That number, by the way, came from the uh, From Here to Equality book by uh, Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullins. And they quoted a paper that was written by, I, I need to re- remember the guy's name, but he wrote a paper that basically gave them the number, gave them um, that number. I think that's the number to, to provide redress for, for the descendants of chattel slavery. That second period that Jaslyn's question referred to was that that period of disenfranchisement with more direct service-based funds for school and whatever else. That is, for my estimation, comes to about $6.6 trillion. Then I think there's this third category for pain and suffering, which is very nebulous, and I tried to kind of put some numbers to it, but what I included was free monthly therapy for every black person in this country from, from age five to, for life. Paid for by the government. Um, pain and suffering also included. So, so, so as a result of redlining and some of the housing discrimination issues, coupled with um, healthcare discrimination issues, black people have a, more, a higher propensity to have diabetes, high blood pressure, and asthma. Um, and those three are very much environmentally based. And the fact that the trends are so similar, so they're, they're about a third more likely to have each of the three, which is insane to me. But that also s- speaks to the trend that these are th- th- that number, the third more f- more like that one third more likely to have those three things means that that can, in my estimation, is a is a product of the, the discriminatory and 
harmful living conditions that black people have endured for a century, right? So pain and suffering for me also includes subsidizing some of the cost of treatments for those three conditions, asthma, diabetes, and high blood pressure. Um, I'm sorry, hypertension. Hypertension was the other one. Um, and so that that's also included in the pain and suffering. And there might have been a few other things there too. So that total comes to $9.24 trillion. The fourth thing is a, is a fairly large bureaucratic entity that supports all of these programs. And a lot of these ideas came from the uh, the National African American Reparations Commission, their, their reparations plan has a large number of these, which basically includes a whole bunch of organizations that would support this. So there'd be a, a, board, of African, a board of Education for African American Ancestry, right? There'd be housing, a housing and Financial Authority. There'd be a Sacred Sites of African American History, which would commemorate spots of lynching, spots of massacres, things like that that have gone unnoticed so, thus far. Um, there'd be a public broadcasting entity to promote black uh, black theater, black storytelling, black creators, all that type of stuff. Um, a criminal justice and and trans, a tr- criminal justice transformation authority, which would, you know, which would you know, liberate and liberate and re reenter those who have been wrongfully incarcerated, you know, into into the general population of of the society. Um, black Business Development Bank, Black Health and Wellness Agency, African Knowledge Program, which again could be one of the agencies that supports people, you know, doing their own ancestry work. So these are all bureaucratic. Um, these are all parts of the federal government that e- either are brand new bureau- um, bureau- bureaucracies or they could tie to existing uh, U.S. departments like the Department of Education, Housing and Urban Development, et cetera, um, to basically support. All of the need, all of these, all of these programs, and all the funds. So we all—I mean, obviously, education needs to be huge to make sure that folks know how a, a huge four hundred fifty thousand dollar asset works, you know, and how that can be leveraged, right? So that whole piece is only about twenty billion dollars. So if you add all that up, my estimate for how much all of that would cost the United States government is just under thirty-three trillion with a T dollars. That's now, nothing. for reference, so who were you going to say? That's nothing. That's nothing, right? It feels like nothing. It feels like not enough. I went through all this, and I did all this painstaking analysis, and I was like, this does not feel like enough. But anybody who's a taxpayer would say that's a huge number. And it, and it, and it if you think about it from, a, you know, COVID relief was like one or two trillion, you know, um, the bailouts of the banks in 2008, 2009 was another two or three trillion. So like those were those were huge in their own rights. And those have had impacts on the macro economy alone. So we are talking about a, a big number in terms of just macroeconomics. And that can't be ignored. Um, but as a black person in jazz and I, I feel you <laughs> it doesn't feel like enough. That's that's barely tw- two times. That's actually like one and a half times the gross domestic product of the country for one year. And if you think about the fact that this country was built by the labor of those enslaved, that feels like nothing. Well, there's two things I wanted to touch on that you said. First of all, I think the mandatory um, therapy should be extended to every single person in this country to truly make this country whole. Because there are some people that literally out of their mind... um, and don't know so it. So can I, can I disagree with you on that one though? Okay. My 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 argument against that point 
is that, and, and this is going to take us down a tangent, and I, I'm just going to jut it out there anyway. Capitalism, and I'll say the white supremacist patriarchal capitalistic system in this country is contributing to the mental health that everybody is suffering under. I think that those three systems are a human. They take us away from our communities. They take us away from compassion. They take us away from what truly makes us humans. They take us away from our creative selves and a number of other things. So the therapy that everybody needs is a much bigger problem than the legacy of slavery. It's linked, but it's, it's a bigger problem. And I think, I, I feel what you're saying, but the government that is supported by the capitalist white supremacist patriarchal entity is never going to provide for you know, the... The, the health and well-being of the people who are suffering under the system that's building it in the first place. Yeah, but you want to provide it to black Americans. Damn right. But, well, how would that help us if everyone else is still racist or still holds these crazy beliefs, and but we're zen and meditating? So so here, that's, that's a great question. I think that the, the, one of the folks that we, we looked into and we were researching this, is that there's a process for achieving repar- reparations. Brian Stevenson, who, who y'all talked about on the show quite a bit. Yay, Brian. He's one, yeah, he's, he's one of the folks who, who, who's contributed to a lot of the thinking here. Um, and, and Dr. Claude Anderson and a number of others, you know, there's a lot of thinking about the process of reparations. And there's really three, or I guess there's four pillars of reparations. There's truth and acknowledgement which is kind of the phase that we found ourselves in last summer where everybody's like, if, if, you ha- if you didn't already know, everybody knows that, you know, racism is a thing. You know, black people are suffering. Cops are doing, doing heinous things, and it's been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, you know, the, the, we're all observing the symptoms now more than ever, I think. And that's part of the truth and acknowledgement piece, right? Once we have this truth and once we're able to see the truth of our country's history and acknowledge that, pillar two is dismantling white supremacy. And I love how this episode is a little bit after the one where you talked about um, racism everywhere and all the other things, because dismantling white supremacy isn't just in the laws. It isn't just in you know the courts and stuff like that. It's in the everyday things. It's in the culture. It's in it's in the media. You know, it's 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 in the representation which you talked about with Fawaz. It's 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 everything, right? So dismantling white supremacy is the second pillar. Once those things are very vibrant and have caught fire, gone viral, so to speak, in the culture and in the community, reparations will be seen as the obvious choice, right? And so it, it, it's, a, it's a long process to get there, and that's a, it's, I'm, you know, I'm admitting that we're nowhere close to that. We're just now observing that racism is here. Great. Okay, great. <laughs> let's, let's, let's continue to do the research and learn and do more and challenge each other and, and, and take these next steps forward and work to dismantle white supremacy and see what, see what pains and what suffering white supremacy has caused. Hmm, best place to start is the descendants of slavery. So how are you going to dismantle these systems of white supremacy without dealing with these people who make up the system and are in power and or down your street? I mean, I think racism is both system, systematic or systemic and within the hearts and souls of a lot of people. So I do think some, and even your the book that you're, you've been talking about by Resma Medicam uh, talks about the need for, you know, black bodies and white bodies to go through these exercises. So yeah. yes, everybody yeah. needs some sort of uh, dismantling of the white supremacy in your mind, not just yes. black people. 
Absolutely. We all need it. We all need it. And that, that's, I would say that's more, po- very possibly a global thing that we need to go through because white supremacy has, has infiltrated the minds of millions, billions around the world. Um, so yes, that's very true. That's very true. And I think, first of all, I don't have the answers to that because I'm just one person and I don't know what's going to move the needle for, for people. I really don't. Something happened when George Floyd was killed and everybody saw that. I personally didn't see the whole video, but very many people were moved by that in a way that people weren't moved before. And that gave me a glimmer of hope. Not much, but a glimmer Mm -hmm. of hope. Because we've been ignored this entire time. You know, I mean, so many people have been killed. Freddie Gray, so many people have been killed before and nobody cared, right? Well, somebody cared. Not a, you're mean, saying nobody in terms of the in terms majority of the glo- culture. Like the global, the globe responded in a way that never happened before. White people responded in a way that never happened before. I, <laughs> I was on my bike. I was biking between here and DC, between Maryland and DC, and <laughs> I walked by. I, I, I was there were two joggers. One, one guy had a show. Had a, one white guy had a shirt that said, "Go go." You know what it say? It said, um, "It said authentic." It said something about like real, real music of the culture or something like that. And I was like, "Wow, that's interesting." And then I had, then there was another white guy who passed by with a Black Lives Matter shirt on. And I was biking on the Fourth of July, by the way. This was a Fourth of July bike ride that I took, and I saw white people wearing stuff about Go Go. White people wearing stuff about Black Lives Matter. Two years ago, hell no, no way. We weren't seeing any of that, and so. I've got a little bit of hope mm-hmm. that this might be the time to start moving that needle in in a way that you know we haven't seen before. The other point I wanted to touch on was this government bureaucracy that you want to create. Um so you would trust the federal <laughs> government after everything to come up with this bureau and do a good job. No, I would not, actually. Um, so <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question because uh, in, in the Path to Equality by uh, Darity and Mullins, they mentioned a National Reparations Bureau, which would kind of be the central, the centralizing agency from which each of those other reparations-focused bureaucracies or, or, or committees would spring off from. And as I mentioned, as we talked about earlier in the show, reparations is only truly, you know, helpful and meaningful if it's the people who've suffered that are at the driving, you know, in the, in the driver's seat. And so the National Reparations Bureau would be constructed by those who, who by a diverse range of people who represent the black community and who represent, you know, enough, enough areas of expertise to, to execute these programs and to lead these programs effectively and to lead that, those bureaucratic agencies, you know, effectively. Hmm. And well, good luck with that. I mean, I, shoot, like I said, I don't have any faith that's going to happen anytime soon in the next five, 10 years, probably not in my lifetime, but that's to me, that's what it would, that's what it should look like. That's what it should look like. 
So, Kyle, like you said, it might not happen in our lifetimes. Um, I guess I, I kind of agree with you there. Uh, but what can what can one person do? Do we uh, are there initiatives that we can back, support, uh, donate to? Uh, what kind of things are happening that we can uh, support now? So, there's one bill that's in Congress right now, HR 40, which is it's it's really a very 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 basic bill piece of legislation it was introduced in the 80s and it's it's still around today it's never been passed mm. and all this bill wants to do is to set up a committee to study reparations mm. just to study it <laughs> can we just look at it please that's all the bill says and it can't get passed so we could ask our representatives to pass the damn bill and study it. Can we just get a lot more smart people than me in the room to study it? Because I'm sure they'll come up with better ideas and probably that'll supersede everything I've said here today. And that's great. <laughs> but, you know, let's let's push our, our representatives to make that a reality. But more so than that, we need to be daily advocates of truth and acknowledgement of our actual history we need to dismantle white supremacy everywhere we see it and we need to contextualize the issues that we're seeing within history do you mean critical race theory no i don't know what the hell that means i just mean history tell the truth <laughs> tell the truth about where all this stuff comes from i don't care what you call it like that's some uh, whatever critical race theory yes Yes, Jaslyn, critical race. <laughs> <laughs> but just to break it down for people, like, like, um, what's it called? Police officers. The first police, police officer, you know what they were called? I know y'all do. Slave patrols. Yes. Police officers' first and foremost duty is to protect the property of the wealthy. You know who mm -hmm. the first property was? The enslaved Africans. That's, the where, that's where the police departments came from. Hello, killing black people has been in their job description for 400 years. This is not new. We should not be shocked by this. Right? Like this is this is how we need to be thinking and the only reason we can the only way we can think that way is we know if we know the history. Right? So I mean when we look at when we look at like when we look at certain behaviors like there's this thing about behavioral racism which Ibram X Kendi mentioned this in uh in oh shoot which book of that was his. Um oh shoot. <laughs> forgetting my sources but he 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 highlighted behavioral racism which is a very brilliant term that i think is is one of the most underutilized terms i had an argue, i had a conversation with with a white friend of mine who moved his family to a very 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 white part of maryland they looked at a half white half non-white part of maryland i'll just say it's howard county columbia area you know and they they were looking for good schools and <laughs> this this particular white kid went white guy went to a predominantly black school and, and in high school, which which is interesting. Um, and he, they were, his family was looking at this the grades. Sorry, the, the grading of the schools based on from from Zillow, which Zillow should be taken to court because it's literally racism. But um, <laughs> the schools in the district that they decided to live in were rated like eight, nine, whatever. And he just looked at. He's like, man, my high school is rated like two or three. I'm like, I'm not gonna say his name. Like, <laughs> you realize that the rating of the school is literally analogous to the number of white people, the percentage of white people there. 
And he was like, oh, well, that's interesting because we were looking at Columbia and I'm, I'm like, let me guess, they were about 50%. They got a five or six score on the, on the schools. He was like, yeah, how'd you know? I was like, because it's about half white. And he got in, we got into this debate about why schools are better than others. And, and he was, and we got into like, well, don't people just not value school as much? And don't people just not work as hard? And da, 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 da. Behavioral racism. That is behavioral racism. Saying that people are not, don't care about education because, they're, because, <laughs> because they live in a certain place or because they look a certain way is behavioral racism. People are responding and reacting to the conditions that they're in which again, redlining, housing discrimination, which has never ended, by the way. Like there's a whole, <laughs> all these things are all tied together. They're all tied together. And until we can contextualize contemporary issues with the full history, we, we, will, be, we will be looking for Band-Aids. We'll be looking, on, we're looking for Band-Aids on a system that is designed to oppress both economically and racially and, and, and sexually too. Mm-hmm. Again, white supremacy, patriarchy, and, and, and uh, capitalism. That's what it is. So should part of reparations be this education, especially of uh, our kids, so that when, you know, when this country is ready, hopefully when they're older, they're ready to move on it. Should should education be part of reparations then? Absolutely. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that the NARC had when I mentioned the bureaucratic agencies, there would be one. Uh, the Board of e- Board of Education for African Ancestry, which would tie to the Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education, which would basically, <laughs> I guess this and, and and they spoke about this and I, you know, adopted it into the reparations program that I came up with long before critical race theory was 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 in in <laughs> in the public discourse. But it, it basically was to do that, which is to ensure that the curriculum K through twelve was an open and honest telling of American history. So, you know, George Washington, rather than teaching kids that he never told a lie, teach them about how many 700 of enslaved people he, he held in bondage, right? That's George Washington. Great. Can, let's, tell our, let's tell our children about the letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote George Washington in like, the, I think it was 1781 or something like that. He said, hey, hey, George, guess what? Hey, this is, this is Tom, by the way. Guess what? If my slaves do nothing, I still make 4%. You know why? Because they have babies. He makes 4% a year because they're human beings and they have babies. That's our founding fathers. We don't teach that. That wasn't in Hamilton? It was not in Hamilton either. No. (laughs) It was not in Hamilton. But this is our history. (laughs) This is our history. You know? And until, until... we can we can look at that. That's primary source material. I mean, these are letters. These are actual letters that people that you can read from our founding fathers, like so to speak, right? Like, I I I I I love Frederick Douglass's you know the the article he wrote about about the Fourth of July and what it means to the Negro. Like, I love that. I felt that my whole life, or at least, well, not my whole life. But as soon as I was able to understand that I was black, like, which was probably eight or nine or ten or whatever it was. I felt that, but no, like, and, and Jasmine, I know you, you understand it in your own context, in your own, from your own upbringing, but the vast majority of Americans have no idea why we would feel that way. And that's the problem. 
So yes, education is a big part of the reparations program. We should make sure that everybody has a full and complete understanding of where prisons come from, where police come from, you know, where the military comes from. I mean, we could, I've been focusing, this entire conversation focuses on African-Americans. I mean, there's a huge movement for, you know, Native nations to get their land back. Yeah. You know, I mean, every human being that's occupying space in this continental United States, in this colonial settler nation, quote unquote nation that's called the United States, we should all be paying taxes to the Native nations whose land we're on right now. That should be a thing. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing. You know, so th- there's, there's a myriad of, of examples of reparations that should be paid and, and histories that should be taught. For example, that the military was the, the, first, the first formations of the military after the Revolutionary War was to go west and literally conquer and, and, and pillage and kill people Men, 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 women, children live literally trying to live in the lands they've lived lived in for hundreds of thousands of years. What do you th- What do you think about the descendants of colonists being the only people who have to pay? I think the entire. I, so I I think I think who pays? I think the federal government pays, right? And the federal government is paid for by everybody in the country. I do think that the super uber, super duper wealthy should pay more because, hey, they got more. Mm-hmm. But I don't think those who, who came here on their own, who, those who are descendants of immigrants, like I mentioned, my mom's family emigrated, my, my mom's family emigrated here in the, in the early 20th century. They should pay, too. You know Why? Because this country would have been nothing to come to if it wasn't for black people. Like even though we came later, or immigrant families came later, they're still benefiting from from the work, from the the labor that was provided by African Americans for free. Mm-hmm. And a lot of immigrant communities, a lot of immigrant folks, within a generation or two, leapfrog African American wealth, mm-hmm. education, all of those things within yeah. a generation. I agree. And it's it's I mean, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I think I think this is a burden that this is a burden that the entire country needs to pay. But also, if you are a descendant of a like of the Confederacy, you should pay more. (laughs) If you own slaves, you should pay more. You should pay more. I think that's what I think. I I think that's. (laughs) Go ahead, go ahead, Jess. If you've ever. Waved a Confederate flag. That's a twenty percent tax additional. I love it. I love it. I love it. I mean, right? I mean, if you're gonna like not make make people prove their, you know, ancestry to 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 um to a slave, then people who own slaves they they sh- their um descendants are probably even wealthier than those who did not. Yeah, that's true, and that's an important distinction to make. Um, though, to address the question in the context we're discussing, I don't think that ultimately matters in, to, in terms of who pays, to be honest with you, because some of the most racist towns are little towns called San Francisco, Chicago, Detroit, Boston. Oh, they're all in the north, so I don't give a crap. 
I don't care. Like if you it, like the the North benefited from slavery just as much as the South because they had co- they had cheap cotton to, to to make to make stuff out of, right? They had sugar to make stuff out of. They had all the materials that they needed, and it was at a price point that nobody else in the globe could afford because the South was doing it off of free labor. So I don't I don't parse those two. I really don't. Mm. Um, pr- primarily for that reason. No, I, see, I see your point. I see your point. That's true. The North and the South were shaking hands. They were brothers. Uh, they were. I mean, three-fifths three compromise was agreed to. Northerners agreed to it. And th- yes, there were several. That was a com- it was, it's called that a compromise, was a compromise. For, for a reason, because there was two parties <laughs> that needed to come together. And they did. And they said that Jaslyn and my body, in my body is a three-fifths a person. They, ca- they well, counted happy, 100%. Happy your body. Counted, well, yeah, that's okay. So. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> I'm trying to do the math. Anyway, yeah, like. Three tenths. Oh, okay, so my, my dad, yeah, right, three tenths. One other thing I'll say about that. Oh, oh, there's so much. So when the Civil War was ending, General Sherman, who wasn't perfect either, he was terrible against Native Americans, but whatever. He was a part of the Northern Army, and they were, you know, liberating the South, or you know, the f- beating beating the South at the, towards the end of the war. They had a council of, I think it was between sixty and seventy African American men, um, who were asked, "What do you want after after with your freedom? What do you want?" And Gerald Fraser, who was a 68-year-old preacher, I think he was from Georgia, and he came up with the idea. He said, give us land. And General Sherman asked them, do you want to be with the white people or not? And I think Fraser and and the others were like, they just owned us, so we should probably not be near them because they're probably mad about that. So what the plan was, was to, everybody's heard of 40 acres and a mule. That concept started, came out of that, those discussions that General Sherman had with, with that con- uh, delegation of, of, of black male leaders. Um, and they actually segmented out a swath of land on the, eastern, on the Atlantic coast of Georgia, South Carolina. It might have gone a little up into North Carolina as well. And that was literally going to be land for newly liberated um, black folks right that's so the 40 acres in a mule was calculated as 10 acres per person assuming a family of four 40 acres um, for those folks in that spot in those in those areas of the country now that plan was ex- was was signed as a as part of the Freedmen's Bureau I think three months later Lincoln's assassinated his successor defunds the entire program and white people with guns and everything took their land back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was the first, I, that was where the idea of reparations in the sense of 40 acres and a mule comes from. It's, it comes from that initial initial, um, initial conversation and that initial pursuit. Um, Callie Howes. Callie Howes is, the, is the another pioneer of reparations. She created a dues-paying organization to advocate for and to document the need for the, the government to pay reparations to newly freed black people. Guess where she wound up? In prison. Mm-hmm. 
because they said that she had like post office fraud or whatever. She was defrauding her members. How convenient. So anyway, um, obviously that's all trumped up charges or whatever, but, but she was another pioneer of reparations. So the Freeman's Bureau said 40 acres for black families, right? In 1862, have y'all heard of the Homestead Act? Mm-hmm. So the Homestead Act. So Jasmine, you know, you want to share what that is? I, I mean, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's like the government gave free swaths of land out, you know, in the frontier for willing people to go out and kick off the uh, native people and make their homes. Do you know how much land they got, Jaslyn? No, I don't. Do you want to phone a friend? No, <laughs> just tell us. <laughs> Each family got 160 acres, 40 acres per person, assuming a family of four. Mm-hmm. For white people right. to go to Nebraska, Ohio, Michigan, the Dakotas. Actually, not the Dakotas quite yet. But I think and, and there's a there's a website that shows how many how much of the state's land was allocated during that period. I think Nebraska had the highest percentage. I think it was like half of the land in Nebraska was given away under that program. I call it the Handout Act of 1862, sponsored by your federal government, offered to white people. Well, there are a lot of handouts. There have been a lot, uh, yeah. but yeah, okay. So anybody, anybody, any white family who thinks they pulled themselves up from the bootstraps living in Nebraska or wherever, I said, you're a damn liar. Because first of all, the military savagely uprooted native nations from their own land. Mm -hmm. Then the United States government, on the on the eve of liberating black people, decided to give white people a ton of land. And those programs lasted for decades. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, black people couldn't get 40 acres per family. So Mm -hmm. even if you're not a slave owning family, I don't care. I don't care because this government has benefited white people immeasurably for the entirety of this country's history. Mm-hmm. True. Now, going back to the ultra rich should pay a little bit more. I noted that Robert Johnson, a black billionaire, I think the first black billionaire. Uh, recently came out in support of reparations for all black people, including himself, who is a billionaire. And, you know, I was for that. You know, you're black. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You should get an equal amount of the reparations. But the part of the article that did not send well with me is that he said that the more successful or more rich blacks should maybe benefit a little bit more because they have shown, they have proven that they know how to make a success or whatever. What do you think about that? Yeah, I disagree. I, well, I agree with your disagreement with that statement. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think everybody should get their, their equitable share, uh, no more, no less, based on lineage, based on, you know, as best we can estimate. I know we delve down to the rabbit hole of, of how hard that, that can be, but as best we can determine you know, we should we should give people what what they're what they're due, and we shouldn't give anybody any extra, you know, umph because they demonstrated success. No, I don't think that's true. I don't think that should be a thing. If anything, we should give more to those who've suffered more. In other words, 
those who are are in poverty and in impoverished situations. I mean, for real, we need to <laughs> reparations should include like reparations could also include wiping out the MVA charges that black people like Philando Castile is one of those examples. He's he's a he's a pinnacle example of this. He was stopped like what forty you know forty two forty nine some some ungodly number of times by the by the police for silly drivers issues like he might have been driving on a registration that was expired or this that the third he got cars impounded he has so many issues just off of bureaucratic stuff about having a car right that should be illegal like that that should like so so reparations clean all that out like if you're black and you got a rap sheet of like you know like tickets or whatever wipe that away that should just go away like if, if 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 somebody's really struggling, somebody's somebody's trying to have a car so they can get to a job, and you're gonna take the car away because they didn't didn't pay a fifty dollar ticket, but that car is gonna give them the means to provide for their family. That's dumb. We need we need to really think about what we're doing here because that that's literally war on poverty right there. You're trying you're literally trying to utilize laws to keep people impoverished to prevent them from being the American citizens you actually you you convince yourself everybody has the opportunity to be. So, you know. If anybody, not Robert Johnson, it should be those folks who get extra benefits in the sense that like those little things, those little tiny microeconomic things that are keeping you back, those should be wiped clean. So, Kyle, I know that you and I know I think Jocelyn agrees with this, is that you want you both want reparations to be like clear cut, you know, in writing like this is this is for reparations. Uh, But what do you you know how the government works is. They kind of they kind of slimy. They kind of hide things in certain places in order to you know like get the money out. You know, like if they were to let's say, I think uh, we were talking about like uh, student loans. Let's say we wiped out student loan debt, and it did help everyone who has student loan debt. Is that like a way to get reparations funded without actually saying it's reparations or would you rather have it clear cut this is for reparations because that would actually solve uh, the underlying issue of you know reconciliation yeah. yeah so I'll accept policies that help people right so if you want to get rid of student loan debt I accept that because that helps people right that's a cool program but don't call it reparations because that's not what it is. What that does is that helps people who have been subject to a predatory financial aid system for college education and that that rectifies, a, a, you know, an issue there. But you're you're only giving that the only people who are receiving that are people who had the means to even get to college in the first place. Right. And again, the folks who need reparations the most arguably are the ones who are in communities, are in situation, circumstances, health circumstances, financial circumstances that make it nearly impossible to even get to college, right? So while a program like that is great and it'll impact some black people, cool, but let's not kid ourselves. That's not reparations. Yeah. Reparations needs to be a direct thing about that specifically addresses black people. And this is, this is something that, that Barack Obama got some heat for. Like He was like, oh, people are like, oh, what did you do for black people? What did you do for black people? And, and the Affordable Care Act was, was a valuable thing that was a, it was a beneficial thing a lot of people benefited from that and a lot of black people probably you know disproportionately black people you know benefited from that more so than than the average you know other other groups potentially i don't know that i'm just guessing but people look at that and say oh look he helped black people because the affordable care act you know helped black people 
So white liberals like to use the whole rising tides lift all boats thing to say that's how they help black people. That's that's a farce. That's a very fake commitment to black people and black issues. Yes, it helped. Great. Healthcare is still a mess, but whatever. That was that was beneficial. And a lot of people who needed it got it now. A lot of wrongful pre-existing conditions are wiped away. It did it did some good. It did a lot of good. That's great. But let's not pretend that he did that for black people because that's not what the intent was. Right? So, yeah, no, I, I don't I don't I don't think policies that are broad are truly reparations. So like Lisa mentioned earlier, there have been some programs that are starting up, maybe at the city level, maybe even at the state level. They're examining some form of reparations type program, either housing grants or even there's um, a report that they're giving out checks um, for descendants in Philly. A lot of these places are in the northern area of the country, above the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, Do you think that southern locations will start to get on board? And do you think Southern participation is like a precursor to a more national um, embrace of reparations? Or do you think that'll ever be the case? I think the North doing it more often is in line with the North's fake story, fake narrative of being nicer to black people and you know less racist or whatever and eh, okay they whatever like again if if, if somebody is trying to, to write a wrong and, and they can they can directly figure out how they're writing a wrong I'm not going to say no I'm not going to say no you know and I know specifically in Maryland Juanica Fisher um, she's a, she, she went to Maryland with us um, she is a, is a state delegate in, in Maryland she has a bill out there to to fund reparations from the state of Maryland, because Maryland was a slave state, to fund reparations to those who are descendants of those who were enslaved in the state of Maryland, wherever they might live. So you could you could have moved out to California, but if you just if you are descendant of somebody who was enslaved here in the state of Maryland, you could get reparations paid to you from the state of Maryland. Um, so that that's a program that hey, I mean obviously that's that's a, on a at a local level that's right in line with what we should be doing nationally. Um, but to your question about the South, should the South be doing it? Of course they should. Are they, are they likely to do it? You know, not so much. But um, Asheville, North Carolina, I mentioned earlier, I think I might have mis, mis, um, said the name incorrectly, but this, this, the town is Asheville, North Carolina. They approved a reparations program almost exactly a year ago, and they were looking to redress a specific issue which, which happened to black people. There was a specific urban development situation where they basically... Um, took people's businesses, annexed people's homes, and and kind of redeveloped this area, and basically didn't treat people fairly in terms of their their the fair value. Basically, the gentrification took place, and people got black people got screwed. And Asheville is now trying to rectify that for those who who were who were ousted from from their businesses or homes at that time. So that's a very specific and direct case where you know the reparations in that case. It's like okay, Asheville, North Carolina perfect like that's that's a very quick and easy not quick and easy but compared to the the national problem we're talking about it's a much more easily defined 
a case for reparations. Um, I mean, Tulsa, Tulsa comes to mind. Rosewood comes to mind. All this, all the cities that had, you know, massive, you know, massacres and stuff like that. Uh, I know we, we passed the anniversary of the Tulsa massacre, a hundred year anniversary of, of the Tulsa man- massacre a couple of months ago. You know, that's another one where, you know, <laughs> there should absolutely be reparations to those who descendants. And I think there's, I think in Congress, they had to testify um, who are still alive today, who, who lived on, lived through that. Um, reparations should absolutely be paid to them and their descendants and the descendants of those who who've, who who suffered and, and have passed on and lived through it. Um, but again, the, yeah, the South is probably less likely to do it. But um, really, the entire country is responsible, and everybody needs to do it to the to the extent that they're that they're liable. And and if if each state, like in Maryland, if if each state wants to do it in their own way, that's cool. But ultimately, the the true way to make America whole is for the United States of America to address this at a federal level. So speaking of the kind of local to the federal, the UN rights chief recently said that globally reparations are needed for people facing racism around the world. So that's kind of a top-down type thing. So do you think this new focus from the UN will help or hurt the reparations cause in the U.S.? I think it will help from a sounding board perspective, but in the sense that, you know, that's another, just another mouthpiece that's speaking to this issue. I don't know that, I mean, the U.N. doesn't have any true power or jurisdiction, frankly, so it, it can't tangibly help. But again, it's just another, it's, just not, it's another agency, another governmental leadership organization that's saying the right thing great um but you know the people who want to hear that will, will embrace it the people who aren't even listening for it won't hear it either so uh, you know it, it it can help but you know it, it the, the work needs to be done on the ground we need to you know kind of go back to those pillars of truth and acknowledgement and and dismantling white supremacy in in very intimate ways in very local and intimate ways which should bubble up into you know a federal a federal movement but um yeah, so I guess what I'm saying is it should be grassroots, but statements like that can't hurt, right? I mean, the more people speaking about that, the more people calling out racism as a as a crime against humanity, uh, uh, you know, that's that's helpful. I guess I had a I guess I have a, a question about the mass incarceration era that you um, defined, and uh, what kind of reparations do you think are for you know the people who are currently incarcerated, or maybe their children who. Um, who are still living now, their families, um, who didn't have the the person incarcerated like working for that, working outside the, you know, working during that whole time. Like what, what kind of reparations do you think is for those who are in mass, incarcera- mass incarceration? So for those who are victims of mass incarceration, I think that reparations should, you know, include a few things. One, it should include an expungement of records, especially for things like marijuana possession, things like, I mean, first of all, the whole marijuana issue, cannabis issue is, is so infuriating to mm. me and, and, and opioids too. And the whole heroin thing, it's infuriating to me. You have people getting legitimate business licenses to open businesses around cannabis, right? Mm-hmm. And there are still people serving life sentences for possession. Mm. That is offensive. Mm-hmm. Right. So everybody who was who was incarcerated for any kind of 
possession charge for any kind of you know illegal drug type of thing they're all coming home not only are they coming home if they want to they're getting those business loans Mm. right they like it they they need to get business loans for whatever they want to start a business in and if it happens to be cannabis so be it (laughs) you know what i'm saying though those business loans for cannabis you know i mean are you kidding me the number of white people out here growing and selling all this stuff it's it's literally offensive it's literally a slap in the face to what was for 30 years a brutal form of terrorism and incarceration and by extension slavery so yeah that that that's one thing but in addition to that there should be a whole lot of programs for for um reentry into into the into into you know into the general population of the United States, the general citizenship. First of all, there's still some states that still say that convicted felons uh, can't vote. That needs to be done away with. That's a, that's another form of disenfranchisement from from a from a you know long you know that's a long been a long fight since the 14th Amendment. So um, or 15th Amendment. And another thing too is and Michelle Alexander in the New Jim Crow she talks about how. If you look at the full scope of the mass incarceration system, it's not just the 2.1, million people who are physically incarcerated right now. It's the I think it's like 10 million people who are on parole or in some kind of house arrest or some kind of other government control of their of their movements based on, you know, some criminal history. Right. I think all of that needs to be evaluated and we need to be very, very liberal with how. Um, how how we liberate folks from those conditions because those are very oppressive conditions those are very um, inhibiting con- conditions like if you if you've served your time you should have uh, you should have plenty of opportunities for education for business loans for I mean people who are coming out of people who are coming out of prison have a hard time finding an apartment have a hard time finding jobs basic things you know that's that that's that just doesn't make any sense like we have to just do right we have to do right by by folks that are coming out of the system especially if they're on some dumb charges that are are based on a on a a drug that's legal now like and and it's 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 a joke but it's not really a joke but like like marijuana is not as costly socially speaking as as alcohol right but alcohol oh happy hour oh you can go down to town you know, have a drink after work because you're stressed and having a beer is a good way to calm yourself down and da, da 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 Like, that's socially acceptable, but, you know, the social cost is immeasurable, right? Whereas whereas cannabis is... <laughs> the medical industry is known for quite some time. This actually helps with anxiety. It actually helps with pain. It helps with a number of things from a medical standpoint. This is actually helpful for bodies, for humans that are healing and coping with various things, right? <laughs> we know this, but that's the thing that's criminalized. I say it's racism, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're probably right. So, Kyle, the reparations program has gone swimmingly. It's got everything you wanted. All the trillions of dollars, all the social programs, all the bureaus you wanted. A generation after it all is all said and done. What does America, what does the U.S. look like? That's a beautiful question. That's a really, really beautiful question that I think more of us should think about more often. We need to be thinking about 
the goal. And for me, America, the United States under those situa- under a situation like that looks more like, you know, Bob Marley had the song War where it says, until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes. Which he, the lyrics of that song are literally a, a speech from Ayla Selassie. But, you know, I see a world where that is more true than ever before. You know, where, where the complexion of somebody's skin, you know, to a much less degree matters, right? Where we've done so much soul searching, both personally and nationally, that we understand what white supremacy did why it was started, what it did, and how we all suffered from it. White people suffer from it too, to a much less degree, but they suffer as well. You know, we are we are all suffering under this system right now. And after reparations, again, it's a process, right? We have to do the truth and acknowledgement, dismantling rights supremacy, then rights, then the reparations. The money, the money comes after a number of long grassroots things needs to happen first. And once all of that work has been done, I truly think that people... I truly think that America, the United States will be a country that lives up to its to its founding documents, right? A country by the people, for the people, you know, all persons are created equal, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. I think that is, that is the vision of, of what this looks like. And I'll also say, and I know people who will disagree with me and, and, and not like me for saying this, but when you look at civil rights, when you look at movements that black people have started in this country, a ton of other people benefit. Some, some benefit even more, right? So reparations, I think, needs to be very specific for black people. Black people need to come out on top of this. But the, but the process that black people and the country will go through will have similar impacts for you know, folks who descend from immigrants um, coming from living in, uh, you know, terrible conditions coming coming across the border, you know, from from Latin American countries or from wherever, whatever part of the world, refugee situations, things like that. Mm-hmm. Again, Native nations are entitled to far more reparations than they've received so far. And and I think that this process that that through the African-American lens, that's what I'm focused on right here in this conversation. But that process can be utilized by other peoples who've awful, also suffered. And that really makes this country the melting pot we we lyingly tell ourselves we are right now. But it'll make it it'll make it more true than than it than it ever has been before. And, and one thing that I'll throw in there that I didn't mention earlier is I mentioned that four hundred and fifty thousand dollars for descendants of enslavement, right? The that amount of money is just enough. If you assume if you assume that money is an asset, a financial asset invested in the market or whatever, right? And if you get like a twelve, I think I can't remember what I estimated off of. If you get like between a nine and ten or eleven, twelve percent return on that investment annually, you know that comes to be around. I might need to plug in the right number here, but that comes to be around fifty-five, sixty thousand dollars a year, right? So if that money stays invested and you live off of the 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 gain the capital gains from that investment descendants of enslavement depending on where you live now in the DC area you're not living off of 60 you're not living very comfortably off of 60k right 
But in a lot of parts of this country, you could survive off of 60K and you don't have to work. You could create, you could, you can do music, you could do art, you could do whatever it is you want to do. And that's something that Resma Menachem said in that, in that um, panel that Jasmine, you told me about that he did back in January. He said, there's nothing more radical to the black body than rest. And if reparations results in rest for black bodies, it would be a success. There's no group of people who've worked harder in this country than black people for as long and under the conditions as gruesomely terrible and oppressive as they've been. So if any group of people deserves some rest, it's the descendants of slavery. that's our show everyone thank you kyle again for coming on and talking about reparations with us Uh, before we end we'd like to do our better world nugget Um, and so for me i uh, will contact my representative about hr 40 uh, just to get the discussion going like uh like kyle said um it's a tiny 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 step uh but it's something that our federal government could do uh you know, in, in this, in this, during this administration, um, so if they say they are open to uh, racial equality, racial equity, then they they should do it. Um, in during this administration, uh, how about you, Jasmine? That's a good point, Lisa. I think I will also contact my representative. Um, also, I think that. Kyle's description of a future better United States is very nice. I would love to see parts of it in my lifetime, if not, you know, a new and improved U.S. Let's see. How many revolutions have there been? This would be 4.0, I think. (laughs) Uh, U.S. 4.0. I would love to see parts of it come true. Um with my own eyes so Kyle any thoughts my better world nugget is really I really want to take a moment to just acknowledge all of the folks who came before me doing this reparations work I I should have mentioned more of them in the beginning and 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 throughout but I'm just a person who's who's passionately studied this for off and on for for years um but i'm i'm just i'm i'm nobody really i'm i'm nobody and 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 i I, i'm i'm the one here on this show because i know i know jaslyn and lisa we've been working together and y'all know that that's that that's the only reason i i I have the voice on this particular platform but i really owe this space and this content to you know cali house to uh, to to Gerald Fraser to um, 
oh, <laughs> to um, to uh, Queen Mother Moore, who was a huge advocate of reparations um, in throughout throughout the twentieth century. Really, um, there's so many leaders before me, and Cobras as an organization. There's so many leaders and organizations who have done this, have done the work, laid the foundation, written the books, written the articles, done the analysis, and I really just want to give thanks to them and. I want to give thanks to my own privilege that provided me access to that material um, to be able to share it with you today. And and I, I really appreciate your questions and your challenging me because because I, I, I don't know everything. I, I, I never will. I'll never have this all figured out. But I truly believe that in a grassroots way, if we all put our heads together, we can we can figure out this very difficult problem and, and truly work to make America whole in the way that our that our documents say that we should be. And so I thank you both for, for, for inviting me on the show to talk about this topic. Yeah. I just, I just had to, I just wanted to say that at the end to just give thanks. Thanks Kyle. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the racism podcast. Before you go, be sure to like or subscribe wherever you're listening to stay up to date on new episodes. And let us know what you thought about today's conversation. Were there questions that we didn't have answered? Uh, were there questions that you want us to answer? We want Kyle to answer. Please let us know. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Racism's Podcast. And on our blog, racismspodcast.wordpress.com. Please consider visiting our Buy Me a Coffee page to show us that you'd like to have us back for a season four. Peace, everyone. Be safe. Music for this episode was created by Jaslyn Dukes and Kyle Carson. This episode was produced and edited by Kyle Carson.